Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's turn to Psalm 78. It's a long, long psalm. (laughs) 72 verses. We started last week, the first eight verses. And... um, Second longest psalm in the Bible, right after Psalm 119. And uh, in verses 1 through 8 last week, uh, God explained that he had a mandatory message that he gives us in his word. That's a mandatory message for us, and it's one that we were commanded to communicate to our children and our grandchildren and the next generation. And this week, we're going to study verses 9 through 39. This psalm is a historical psalm. So it's a testimony, really. Uh, It testifies of the long history of God's people's faithlessness toward God, as well as the long history of God's faithfulness toward his people, toward you and I. Before we read verses 9 through 39, I'd like to quote two scriptures that God gives us through the Apostle Paul. The first one's in Romans 15, 4. And it says, For whatsoever things were written before... They were written for our learning that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. The second one is a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 11. It says there, now these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, neither be idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So in both of these passage, passages here, God is telling us, as well as in the historical account of Psalm 78 that we're going to study together tonight, really uh, what God is telling us is that from Genesis to Malachi, um, these things were written for our benefit. They're examples. Uh, what we're going to study tonight is full of examples. What we're going to study next week as we finish Psalm 78, full of examples that can help us learn um, what it means to have faith in God and to be faithful to him as we live our lives and following Jesus. It's a mandatory message like we learned last week, one for you and I, uh, so that we can learn from God's message to us, so we can experience the transformational work that God's word does when the Holy Spirit takes it and drives it into our heart. Let's read verses 9 through 39 the whole entire thing, so we get a bit of context. It says in verse 9, the children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law and forget his works and his wonders that he had showed them. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand as a heap. 
In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink, as out of the great depths he brought streams also out of the rock, and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? And behold, he smote the rock, and the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. But can he give bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore the Lord heard this, and he was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God. They trusted not in his salvation. Though he had commanded the clouds from above, and opened the doors of heaven, and had rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them the corn of heaven, man did eat angel's food. He sent them meat to the full. He caused the east wind to blow in the heaven. And by his power, he brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust, feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp round about their habitations. So they did eat and they were well filled for he gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust. But while the meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them, smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this, they sinned still and believed not his wondrous works. Therefore, their days did he consume in vanity, their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they saw him. And they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues for their heart was not right with him. Neither were they steadfast in his covenant, but he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, and he destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away, and did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and cometh not again. Heavenly Fathers, we study your word tonight. I pray your Holy Spirit would show us the truth that you want us to understand. God, I, I pray... Most of all, that we would not follow uh, this historical example of Israel. We would learn from their lesson that we would live in the reality of Romans 15, 4 and 1 Corinthians 10. That we would learn from history and learn and believe and, and actually live like you're a God who is trustworthy. And we'd put our trust in you, tangible ways in our lives. I pray your word would be used in our lives to do that this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 9 through 11, um, we have Ephraim's example. Uh, and we see their fear in verse 9. Uh, the historical part of this psalm really begins in verse 9 and goes through the rest of the chapter. Um, and, and it begins with a short introduction to a particular tribe in Israel, Ephraim. Now, typically when you come across Ephraim in the Old Testament, it's not just talking about the tribe of Ephraim. They're, usually it's representative of the, the 10 tribes that um, left after Solomon was king. And um, they kind of split the country. Uh, they, went to the, they were known as the Northern Kingdom. Um, at one point, though, Ephraim was, was the mightiest. They were the strongest tribe in Israel, like through the time of the judges, really till about the time Saul became king. Um, definitely in the, 
military sense, they were the most well-renowned tribe. If you look at those maps in the back of your Bible, small compared to some of the other tribes as far as size and geographical location, but they had great military strength. However, Judah took over the leadership role once Saul became king and, and David became king. <clears throat> and verses 9 through 11 let us know why. <clears throat> Look at verse 9. It says, The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day uh, of battle. So even though they were of great military strength, uh, a powerhouse, verse 9 says they turned back in the day of battle. If we go from Genesis to Malachi, we will have an extremely tough time locating what that phrase is talking about. There's no historical record of when Ephraim was a coward in battle, when they went running with their tail between their legs. Um, we don't have that. So what, what is God talking about here? I, I believe verses 10 and 11 give us the answer. Um, it was a fear of man instead of a fear of God. It was faithlessness on Ephraim's part. If we look at verse 10, it says, they kept not the covenant of God. Ephraim refused to walk in his law. They forgot his works and his wonders that he had showed them. So verses 10 and 11 indicate that the cowardice that's described here is not a physical or military one, but it's a spiritual type. They failed to keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in God's law or according to God's word. They forgot God's works, what God had done for God's people in the past, the wonders that he had showed them. And it wasn't just Ephraim. And what we're going to learn tonight and over the next week is that this is the historical record of God's people. Um, for the most part, it's one of trading a courage-infusing fear of God for a cowardice displaying fear of man. And when that occurs, leaving God's covenant and um, refusing to obey his word and forgetting his word, so that's a very natural and painful result. Why would they do this? Did they have any reason to choose this course? Because in verses 12 and 16, we see the first introduction here in this chapter about God's goodness. Verses 12 to 16 tell us, no, absolutely not. They had no reason um, to doubt God, to not put their faith in God, to live in such a faithless way. Verses 12 and 13 talk about God as their creator says in verse 12, marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea. He caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand as a heap. And verse 12 is very descriptive of God's creation of the nation of Israel. Yes, it was born originally in God's covenant promise to Abraham um, and Isaac and, and Jacob, but in a very real way. They were born as a nation when God delivered them from the bondage and slavery of Egypt. And you remember how he did that. The Egyptian army was pursuing them, and God brought them through the Red Sea, right? Walls of water standing on each side of them. God created this nation when he, when he did that, when he brought them to Mount Sinai right afterwards and, and entered into actual relationship with them by giving them his law. And then actually carrying them to the promised land, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on Sunday. Brought them to the precipice of promise. And later in this psalm, um, all of this is going to be referenced in greater detail. But for now, God just draws our attention here in verses 11 and 12 to his goodness, to his people, because he created them. And I want you to notice in verse 12, it describes his creation of this nation 
It happened through marvelous things in the land of Egypt and Zoan. Zoan was the northeast part of Egypt where um, Israel was located when they were in slavery there. God's goodness in the creation of Israel is something that should have caused even this generation to marvel, to be in worshipful awe of God. And there's a very important thing that kind of harkens back to last Wednesday in verse 12. It says, marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers. Meaning that the generation that Psalm 78 was written to had been more than a couple since the time. None of these people who would be hearing this from Asaph, none of them would have actually witnessed this. But as we learned last Wednesday, mom and dad were supposed to tell their kids and their grandkids and next generation and next generation. So that this wouldn't happen. They wouldn't leave God's covenant. So that they wouldn't forget his works and refuse to walk according to his word. If, if marvel, awe, worship, and faith in God's goodness, if they're going to continue to subsequent generations, if fear is going to be destroyed by faith in the lives of our kids and our grandkids, this mandatory message must be communicated to them. Even this one about what God did for his people there, as well as... Um, are needing to communicate what God has done in our own lives, the marvelous things he has done. Their deliverance through the Red Sea, as it's described in verse 13 here, is such a powerful picture, uh, what we call in theology an Old Testament type or, or a foreshadowing of our relationship with God through faith in Jesus. When he uh, created us for the second time, when we were born again, uh, the Israelites coming from the bondage and slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, uh, such a close parallel to when you and I were born again by faith in Jesus Christ, when, when God created us. Um, and, and the point here is that his goodness to us as our creator, it should give us continued faith in him that will drive out fear. That was what it was supposed to do there. It's a worthy subject to communicate to our kids. When God did that for you, they should know your testimony. Your kids and your grandkids should, should know when uh, you were born again, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And the goodness of God to his people is also presented in God as their sustainer. He's not just their creator, he's their sustainer in verses 14 to 16. Because his goodness goes so much farther than just us being saved, right? It goes so much farther than God just creating us. Ours is not uh, the God of most of the religions of this world. Uh, ours is not even the monothe monotheistic uh, God of deism who, who yeah, may have created the world and set it all in motion but has had no intervention ever since that time. No, we have a very personal God. He's involved in our lives. He wants relationship with us. He's not only our creator, but he's our sustainer. And that's what verses 14 to 16 are talking about. It says in verse 14, in the daytime, also he led them with a cloud. And all the night, he led them with a light of fire. Verse 15, he clay the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. And verse 16 talks about the same thing. Back in verse 14, he leads and guides his people. That's what he did. He did it for them and he does it for us as well. They had a pillar of fire. They had a pillar of cloud to lead them by day. Marvelous, as it talked about before. Marvelous manifestations of his goodness to his people. And we have the same. We have the word of God to guide us. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us. 
In verses 15 and 16, we're reminded from this history lesson of how God, in a very tangible, real, uh, you could see it way, sustained his people in their journey from Egypt to Canaan. They were in an inhospitable desert wasteland. Uh, There's no food lying there. How are they going to eat? And what did God do? He provided them water from the rock. Marvelous. And he's done the very same thing for you and I. Jesus Christ describes himself as a living water in John chapter 4, John chapter 7. God is our creator and God is our sustainer. And because of that, he's worthy of our faith. That's the point here. And then in verses 17 to 39, this is a longer section that continues to describe the faithfulness of God to his people, but also his people's faithlessness toward him. Verses 17 to 37, we see Israel's idolatry. Verse 17 communicates to us that God's people, they did not respond. God's good. He created them. He sustained them. Water comes out of the rock. What was their response? They did not respond with faith and worship as a result of God's goodness. In fact, it says in verse 17, they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And this was such a frequent response by God's people in the Old Testament. We're getting kind of a Cliff Notes version here in Psalm 78. So we don't have to read, um, you know, Judges uh, to, to Malachi. Such a frequent response that there's so many Old Testament accounts where this verse could apply to. That's sad. Now, uh, verses 18 to 29, let us know what specific event God is referencing here when he says they sinned yet more against him by provoking him, by tempting him. He has provided them with water. He has provided them with food in the form of manna. That's what we find out in verses 18 to 29. Um, Described in verses 23 to 25, a very supernatural provision of food. Any of you grow manna in your garden? No, right? A supernatural provision of food. Um, and when we, it's just, it's, it's amazing to me. They didn't have to plant it. They didn't have to weed it. They didn't have to water it. And even harvesting was, was pretty low on the effort. I know, Craig, you got a big garden. And luckily, it's kind of right out your back door, at least one of yours. But, um, I mean, literally, this was right out their back door. They left the tent. There it is on the ground. Get a bucket and, and scoop it. That, that's what God did for them. We, we see his goodness in that. Did they respond with worship for God's goodness, with faith in God's goodness? No. It says that they sinned yet more and more against him, provoked him. Just as verse 17 and 18 told us. They responded with faithlessness. Verses 19 and 20. It has them questioning. If God can continue to provide. If their creator was able to sustain them. They responded to God's goodness with complaints. It talked about murmuring there. Responding to God's gracious gifts to us with complaints. You know the account. Manna again. I say that sometimes about chicken, don't I? So they said, manna again? Back in Egypt, we had an abundance. Variety. Vegetables, meat. Looked like a full produce section at Harris Teeter. Manna again? God? So God gave him quail. That's the kind of God he is. God gave him quail. Supernaturally. Just like the manna. This wasn't a big hunting party going on at Allen Brothers. He gave them quail. Cause a wind. That's what it said there. 
cause a wind to blow the little birds right to their doorstep. It's the kind of God uh, he is. I want to highlight two verses before we move on. Verse 22 talks about their problem. This is because they believe not in God. They trusted not in his salvation. And then their practice. This is what faithlessness leads to. Verse 29. It says, So they did eat and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. Faithlessness leads to idolatry. Do they desire God? Mm. They desire God's gifts. And what's described here, especially in verses 29 and 30, in the phrases, their lusts and their own desire. It's idolatry of worshiping the gifts of God over the actual giver of the gifts. That's idolatry, as much as bowing down to some idol is. Um, verses 31 to 33, it describes how God's people, the, the generation that wandered in the wilderness after refusing to enter the promised land because of their fear, because of their faithfulness, how they perished. They perished out there. Uh, never learning. They never learned their lesson. Repeated lessons that God had given them. Now in verses 34 to 37, it does describe for a brief time uh, certain moments. That one because of the chastisement of God, because of his loving discipline, that they would return and seek him. Verse 35 says, they remembered that God was their rock and the high God, their redeemer. It's really interesting when he says they remember God was their rock. Same exact word he uses earlier in verses 16 and 20 when he's talking about Moses hitting the rock and water coming out. Is the water what you should be worshiping? Is the water what you should be putting your faith in? God's gifts to you, is that what we need to put our faith in? Don't. Did you know what will happen? They can go away, right? Does he go away? No. He doesn't go away. Same exact word there. Um, instead of worshiping God as their rock, they have been guilty of worshiping the gifts of God. And uh, are we, we ever guilty of that? Worshiping the gifts instead of the giver? If we don't know for sure, gauge your reaction when something gets taken from you. If you're like me, I can very quickly turn into the response of some of the toddlers in the nursery here when something gets taken from them. Am I ever guilty of putting my faith in God's benevolence instead of putting it in the benefactor? That's a bad idea. Because he won't give his glory to another. He says that over and over again in the book of Isaiah. And if we do that, just watch those gifts get removed from your life out of love, out of grace, in order to set us right. That's what he'll do when we choose to do what they did here. God will graciously, he'll graciously strip away whatever we have incorrectly elevated. And he'll do it for our good. He'll do it for his glory. He'll do it so that he is returned to that place that only he should occupy in our hearts. He'll do whatever he has to do so that we come to the conclusion that he is enough, that he's more than enough. And as painful as that can be, and it can be painful, I've experienced it. That's really God's amazing grace to us. And, and that's what verses 38 and 39 highlight. 
I chose to end here because I like ending on God's grace. Look at verse 38. But he, God, being full of compassion, he forgave their iniquity. He destroyed them not. Yea, many a time he turned his anger away, did not stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes away and cometh not again. So we see God's grace here. What is our God like? Verse 38 says he's full. He's full of compassion. He forgives sin. He did not destroy them. He was merciful. Did not give them what they deserved. He was gracious. He gave them what they do not deserve. In fact, many times he turned his anger away from them. And verse 39 tells us that God remembers that you and I are but flesh. That we and even our lives here are so very different than who he is and what he is like. It says in verse 39, we're like a wind that passes away. Our life is but a vapor. Jesus' stepbrother James, uh, half-brother James tells us in the book of James. You know, if most of us were treated as God's people then, and if we're honest, God's people now, if most of us were treated as they and we treated him, I dare to say we would not be as he is described here, full of compassion, full of forgiveness, full of pardon and grace. And what has been described here in Psalm 78 is a long, we got a, we got a part two coming up, which is more of the same with some other specific and particular points. But what's described here is a long history of God's people returning faithlessness and returning fear and returning its resulting sin for God's long history of faithfulness to us, of goodness to us, of being gracious toward us. You know, 27 or so chapters ago, we find Psalm 51, treasured psalm in the Bible. It's a psalm that God inspired David to pen after the prophet Nathan had confronted him about his sin of adultery and, and murder. It's a song of confession. It's a song of repentance. And the best part is it's a song of restoration to an intimate relationship with God. Um, but I don't know if it would have ever been penned if God had not sent the prophet Nathan to David. I'm sure it was difficult for Nathan to go do that. I'm sure it was very difficult for David to hear. But it was so necessary. But even in that confrontation... And Nathan coming to David. Even here in this historical psalm, Psalm 78. Do you not see the amazing grace of our God? It's amazing. I mean, he pursued. God pursued David by sending Nathan the prophet to confront him. Did God have to do that? No. That's who he is. It definitely wouldn't be our typical reaction when someone might sin against us or wrong us. And over and over again, that's what we read here tonight. That's how God deals with his people. He pursues them, pursues people who refuse to believe in him. He pursues people who refuse to recognize his goodness. And in fact, sometimes who worship his goodness to them instead of actually worshiping him. God pursues those who repeatedly choose fear over faith. And I'm so glad he does. But the point of that pursuit 
is so that we change, so that we stop worshiping those things, so we stop living in fear, so we give faith and worship to the only one who is worthy of it. And he does the same for, for you and me today. So my question for you tonight is, will you worship him, church? Will you worship this God of amazing grace, this God who has created you and he sustains you every day? He is doing that right now. He will do that tomorrow. Will you worship him by believing? That's what he wants. By believing, not by singing. I mean, that believing ought to be expressed in song. Not by praying. That believing ought to be expressed in prayer. Not by serving or giving. Your believing ought to be expressed in those ways. Not by witnessing. He wants you to worship him by believing. Will you worship him with confession and repentance right now if there has been any, even a shred of faithlessness in your life? Will you worship him with a commitment to trust who he is and believe what he's done and believe that that's a good reason to keep on believing in what he's promised to do? Will you worship him by committing to communicate this message to others, including our kids and our grandkids, so that they can do the same and so that you and I and so that they do not follow Ephraim's example or the Hebrews' history as Tommy and the praise team to come and that's the invitation. It's an invitation to worship him as we close in singing tonight. An invitation for you as, as we sing. Make this a prayer to God. And anything else he's, at, he's asking you to, to um, change. Ask him for that help tonight. Ask him for that grace. Tell him that him and him alone. That's the only one that's worthy of worship.